We'll start with the book of Exodus chapter 2 tonight. We introduced the book of Exodus last week, and now we are in the second book. The word Exodus comes from the same word meaning to get out of, like an exit. So it is to leave. So if you are exiting a place, you're leaving it. It's going out of, of a place. Um, the E is the key there because if you are leaving a country, you're not an immigrant, you're an immigrant with an E. If you're coming into a country, you're an immigrant coming in, I. So that's the difference between immigrant and immigrant. There's a slight difference. So an immigré in French would be somebody who left the country. During the French Revolution, they left. There were many immigrés because they didn't particularly want to stay around and have their head chopped off, which you can't blame them. So it was a rough time during the French Revolution. So this exodus is going to be the mark of the leaving of Egypt. But there's a lot of preliminary things have to happen before they actually leave Egypt. And that's where we are now. Now, we learned in chapter 1 of Exodus that the Pharaoh, after hundreds of years, had no idea who Joseph was, had no living memory, had no written memory of who Joseph was, no respect for the God of Joseph or for Joseph. So Joseph was a great hero. He was treated like royalty. He had privileges, as good privileges you could ever imagine to have. Uh, kind of the exact opposite of the way his life uh, was when he was a slave and a prisoner. So he had both extremes, didn't he, in his life. He had the, the, the most extremes uh, in, in his life. So now we, uh, we find out that because the people of Israel grew in numbers, they were a, uh, a real threat, at least in the minds of the Egyptians, because they could see the handwriting on the wall, even though that's a bad reference because that comes later in Persia. But still, they could see that if things stayed as they were, they were going to be outdone by this group of people, which, of course, it was not God's plan for those people to stay there anyway. It, he had promised them some other place. So their thoughts and the Lord's thoughts were toward the same purpose, except their way of getting it done was wrong. But God was prepared for it. They tried to stop the reproductive processes by killing the baby boys, and that didn't work at first. Uh, the, the midwives wouldn't go along with the program. So we're going to learn while this genocide or attempted genocide is happening, and we don't know how many babies were killed because of the order of the king of Pharaoh, we're going to learn about a Levite. Remember the house of Levi. Levi was one of the sons of Jacob. And Levi was later on going to be known as the priestly clan, the priestly group. So one of the descendants of Levi uh, is going to be a very important person in the Bible, and we're going to learn about him today, at least part of partly. And a man of the house of Levi went and took his wife, a daughter of Levi, so they were from the same tribe, but remember, there were thousands of people, okay, thousands in this group. So the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. That phrase, a beautiful child, I don't know if, he, if he'd been ugly, would they have killed him? I don't think so. I think it's referring rather that he was, he was doing well, he was healthy, 
And why would you want to have any harm done to this child? And uh, when they had birth defects uh, and it was unlikely that the child was going to live, they, they didn't kill the children even then. They, they did their best, but, um, you know, they just, they, they didn't, it was not natural to kill children, just telling you. Uh, while many cultures did it as sacrifices, it was something that was condemned by God. And, and other nations condemned it too. It wasn't just every country doing child sacrifice. So she hid him three months, but when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him. Now, that word ark kids in the Bible studies, uh, and even as adults, we get that word mixed up. The word ark is used in different cases. The ark of Noah was giant. It held the, the animals and the family of Noah. It was, uh, if you ever get a chance, if you haven't been to the, the, the place up there where they have a model of it, it's fantastic to see the, the, the giant ark. It's 500 feet long. It was, a, it was the largest ship in the world until the middle of the 1840s when they were eating carrots and dying, you know. That's what, that was what was happening. So, I mean, literally, it wasn't until the 19th century that they built a ship bigger than the Ark of Noah. So, pretty good record, you know. That lasted a long time. Now, uh, but here you have the word Ark used as a small little container to carry the baby who is going to be saved here. And, uh, and then later on, we're going to have what's called the Ark of the Covenant, which is a, a, a box that's roughly the size of the dimensions of the table that's at the front of this church there, the, the Lord's table uh, and a communion table. So uh, it means a, a box-like shaped object. So it's a container so you have a giant container with Noah's Ark. You have a small container here. It doesn't mean boat, but it's a floatable thing if you seal it. And that's generally what happens. And in this case, they took an Ark of bulrushes for him, dashed it with asphalt and pitch, in other words, to make it waterproof, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. So they're not leaving him to the alligators uh, or the crocodiles, I should say. He, they, she's watching where he is. Now, they did this deliberately. The Nile River is a river, okay? And it can flow. Now, they don't put him in the worst part of the river where it's going at, at four miles or five miles per hour. Any of you have ever been to one of these large rivers of the world, you know that they go pretty fast, especially at certain times. And they're kind of dangerous to be in. You wouldn't want to be swimming in some of these rivers. Uh, it's oftentimes people fall in the Mississippi River and you don't see them alive again because it's dangerous. So I don't think that they put them out there where it was going to be endangering. The whole purpose is to save the life. So you're not going to go all to the trouble of building, making this little ark and putting him in the basket, covering him, making sure he's okay. And then just let him go and turn your back on him. No, she's the sister, older sister is watching him to make sure that he gets where they want him to go because they, they have an idea, I think, of where they want him to go. 
Uh, I don't think that they are doing this by accident. They, they're going to have him at a, at, a, at a good neighborhood in town. Very good. It has to be pretty good because you find out who finds him. Now, it says here in verse 5, Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. Well, it was no accident, I think, that he was allowed to be here in the bulrushes, hidden there, uh, floating. Uh, they knew that this spot was a, a prime spot for Pharaoh's daughter and her maidens. At least a lot of wealthy people went there because you can imagine these are all wealthy people. And her maidens walked along the riverside, and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him. And said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Uh, probably knew it by the clothes uh, and the way the weave of the basket, maybe. Or maybe it was uh, the weave on the cloth. Uh, yes, if, they, if he was circumcised. But remember, that was not a practice that was, it was done, but it wasn't a law. So, but yes, could have been that. But he, she knew it was a Hebrew child. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? It's uh, amazing how, you know, in our modern day with the way people have uh, baby formula and just what I call non-natural ways of feeding babies, uh, in those days, the way they fed babies was the old-fashioned way. And uh, so who better to feed uh, a baby? Now, there was women who had had a child, but the child was weaned, could become wet nurses themselves. And this was a common thing because you would get paid and you would be able to save the lives of children because there might be problems with certain mothers being able to feed their babies or they maybe they were sickly or they died in childbearing. So this was a very worthwhile thing for children. So this, this baby is not weaned. And so the, the sister here says, hey, should I get a Hebrew woman to come and take care of this baby? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So she, the maiden went and called the child's mother. So the mother gives up the, the son, her son. But then she gets close connection back with him. So she becomes his nanny from that point, her and nursemaid, and takes care of her own son. But at the same time, Moses is going to get raised by Pharaoh's daughter. And that's pretty good because that puts him as a prince. He's going to get raised as a prince, which is, there's a lot of privilege that comes to being a prince, isn't there? Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So he was adopted, and that's pretty impressive. So Moses, well, he, he, we got to call him Moses when he gets called that first. But her, so she called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. It's, it's an Egyptian name. Now, it's not uncommon for Jews today to have the name Moshe, which is a variation of this. 
But so we think of it as a Jewish name, but it was not a Jewish name in the Bible times. It was Egyptian. So like a lot of things in the Bible that were unusual at the time, they don't get repeated. So you don't have a lot of people named Isaac. You don't have a lot because that meant laughter. And you certainly don't have anybody else called Moses because it's Egyptian. So that would be strange for people to have that name. So Moses' name, gets he, it sticks with him. He gets an Egyptian name drawn from the water. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown. So we, we have a whole lot goes on in that time. If you watch the films, the Ten Commandments, and there's several of those films, but uh, you, most of the writers try to fill in the blanks there. We learn later in the Bible that Moses was, was uh, raised in all the learning uh, of the Egyptians. So he was a very smart young man. He was educated and he was well-to-do in his life. But because he had two mothers in a sense, he had his real mother, who was his nurse, and he had his adopted mother. This allowed him to be able to learn the best from both. And he, did, he never turned his back on his physical roots. You know, he, did, he, didn't, he wasn't ashamed of his roots, okay? That's important. So he does grow up, and that he went out to his brethren, now that would be the Hebrews, and looked at their burdens. See, Moses grew up, and you know, he's thinking, you know, all my, my people are slaves, but I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> I'm doing pretty good for myself. And, he, and I think he felt a little guilty about that. I think he felt like, why am I doing well when they're doing difficult? So he's Moses already has in his mind the plight of these people. It bothers him. He has compassion and empathy for his fellow Hebrews. So he's thinking a lot about this. This is not something that happens just as an accident. He is thinking maybe I can do something. Maybe I can use my power and influence to do something about it. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Now, this made him mad. Moses is not happy to see some guy abusing his authority. And he, nobody should be abusing their authority. Nobody. It's like when we have all these riots because uh, people in authority beat people who are not in authority down. Well, uh, there are times that criminals need to be beaten, I'm just telling you. But at the other time, there are times when you just need to lay off, you know. There's no reason if you've got them in custody and you've got, got them where they need to be, you don't need to add to it. You're just creating problems. Moses, in this case, is really mad at this guy. And uh, he acts on his, on his anger. So he looked this way. And that way, I like how the Bible says it, you know, he's, he's, he's like in the, you know, almost a comedy, even though it's not comic for the, for the Egyptian here. But he looks, he looks, nobody's looking. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Took care of a problem. Um, <laughs> now, we can talk all day about whether the Egyptian deserved it. He's probably a rotten human being, and we can say a lot of things. But let's face what Moses did. He did a very dangerous thing from a practical perspective. If the word got out that he had killed an Egyptian, that's almost like starting a, a, a riot or not just a riot, but a rebellion. Uh, 
So Moses is got a sense of righteousness and righteous indignation. He's really angry. Also, he's very bold. So he's not a pacifist. We, we, you know, the Bible later on will say Moses is the most meek man in the world. Kind of hard to see that when you see him here. Because he's not being meek. He's being very assertive. He's asserting power to the extreme, isn't he? He's taking care of a problem. And no doubt, in my mind, I don't, I don't think the guy was any good. I think the guy he beat was a no good in the sense that we would say that about anybody. But it, it's just that he did it. But there's always a risk when you take the law into your own hands, right? There is a risk. There was a show I watched recently in which they had characters on it, and the writers did a really, really good job. It's a, a crime drama set in like 1960s, okay? Right in the middle of the Cold War. And uh, it's it, it, it just over time, you know, you have two cops. You have a younger cop and an older policeman. These are in, in Britain. And the, the younger cop and the older cop are investigating uh, a murder somewhere else. And, and there's a newsstand, uh, news store, and there is a married couple. And the, and the older cop, who is a really good guy, says he notices that the wife of the man in the store had a, uh, a black eye. Okay? And, that, and she said she fell, you know. And the man is always harsh to his wife. I mean, every time he goes in there, he's always being very critical of the wife. And then this happens repeatedly. So eventually, after many, many things happen in the show, the, uh, they get word that they got to go to the newsstand. The, the older cop warned her, says, you got to go to someone else because you're going to get killed. This guy's going to kill you. And she got hospitalized one time. So... At the end of the show, yeah, there's a body. So he goes back there. Turns out it's the husband who's lying at the bottom of the stairs with a broken neck. And uh, we kind of know what's going to happen. But the inspector says, now, before you say anything, I want to advise you that you can remain silent. <laughs> and the way I see this thing happening is that this was an accident, and just leave it at that. That's his idea of justice. And as a viewer, you're kind of feeling like, well, I kind of understand, you know, kind of justice, even if she pushed him down the stairs. <laughs> However, there was a twist. Because the younger inspector, the, the, the sergeant, comes in later and gives the older man a hard time. What are you doing? You, you're acting like God yourself? And, and of course, he says, why are you giving me a hard time? I do it my way, and, and that's the best way to do it. It may be old-fashioned, whatever. So the young man goes into the place after and talks to the woman. Turns out that both of the, the husband and the wife were communist spies and were part of a spy ring, and because of that, uh, they had been had been responsible for the deaths of several people. And so when the young guy leaves the place, the, uh, the special services people are ready to go in there and the woman is uh, probably going to go away for a very long time. So you see, you don't always know the whole story, do you? You don't always know the whole story. 
<laughs> it was very good. It was very good because I'm sitting here agreeing with the older inspector, you know, that's justice, you know. But then you realize they're, they're not as good a people as you might think, even though they didn't maybe like each other for sure. So here's Moses. He has killed a man and uh, he goes out uh, and he hid, his, hid the body, it says, in the sand. Verse 13, and when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? So why are you striking your companion? Uh, again, Moses is not a pacifist. He's, he's not happy to see people of their own group fighting each other. I've seen members of the urban community who have said this about their own community and, and tried to stop the violence in their own community, getting mad because people are shooting each other. So Moses is seeing the same problem. Okay, Moses is trying to address a problem. Hey, why are you fighting each other? Moses has really got a sense of righteousness and Moses really wants people to treat people fairly, but he's willing to act when he needs to. Then he said, the, the man who he talked to, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptians? <laughs> so somebody got the word. Somebody saw him. Somebody got the word that he had killed the Egyptian. This is bad news for Moses because Moses knows that his days now are numbered because if that word's found its way into the hands of these guys, what's going to happen when it gets to the top? He's going to be strung up or something bad is going to happen to him. So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. <laughs> when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. So now Moses goes from being a privileged uh, prince to being a fugitive. Yeah, he, 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 uh, now Moses is, again, not helpless. He's a very smart, resourceful human being. Got to remember, he leaves basically with nothing, and he's going to come back with God's blessing, but he's going to survive. He's going to make it because he can make it. He, he is not a useless human being. He has a real sense of what it means to be a man, and in this case, he's going to save his life. He's still young, so he says, I'm gone. I'm going to go. You know, uh, he... You know, it's kind of like maybe it wasn't convicted, couldn't be convicted of first degree murder, but he certainly could have been convicted of uh, manslaughter. Uh, and in those days, they didn't make a distinction. So. so Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. A lot of things happen in the Bible next to wells. Okay, a lot of things. Important place. They, they, they are important places of gathering because you gotta have water. You know, water is going to always be the, the focal point of transportation in the ancient world. You, if it isn't a river, it has to be a path that leads to an oasis or a well, because you gotta have water. And so, he said, remember, we started off next to the water in the River Nile, now we're in the water of a well that comes from the ground. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. 
Uh, think of Jacob when he saw Rachel and he helped water the flocks back then. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. Bullies, a bunch of bullies. You know, these women, they're out there working like the men are, and yet the men are bullying them and kicking them around. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock, helped them. I like how that was. <laughs> Moses was a very tough guy. Like I said, he was well-trained. He, he probably got learned how to fight. You know, he probably got military training in his princely condition because princes might have received such training. So he was not a helpless man. He drove, the, drove these guys off and uh, rescued the day. Uh, and, and again, how can one man do that? Well, it happens in the movies all the time. So I know it has to be true, right? But he was a tough guy. So we've established that Moses was a man of a strong sense of, his, of righteousness, a strong sense of right and wrong, and, a, and, and he doesn't suffer fools at all. Doesn't suffer fools. And these guys, he's just going to take care of it. He, he, just, he probably wore uh, clothing that showed that he was a man of prominence, a lord of the day, and I felt like uh, it could have been just the way he looked at people. He was not backing down. And half the way of winning a fight is what? Putting on a brave face and not backing down. I mean, the key is if you look like you're going to do the job, it can intimidate people who are not ready for a real fight. If you're, if you're beating up uh, these women and then you've got a guy who's maybe tougher than you looking and he's looking you in the eye, you're probably going to think twice about maybe fighting. All right. And when they came into Reuel, their father, which he also has the name Jethro, and it was not uncommon to have multiple names. Sometimes you have multiple names, just like in the New Testament, where you have Simon, but his nickname was Peter. But he was called Cephas, because Peter is the Greek version of his nickname. Cephas is the Hebrew version of his nickname, but his real name was Simon. Confusing, huh? So a lot of people make a lot of hay, if you're going to say that, about this, about his name gets called Jethro and he gets called Rule. Well, hey, there's lots of people that get, are known by multiple names. It says, how is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the, he, of the shepherds. And he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he didn't mess around. He, he used his strength. He was a strong man. He, did, he, he fought these guys off. They didn't have to wait in line for hours like they were accustomed to. They got good treatment. And that's why they were allowed to come back early. So he said to his daughters, and where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he, the man, gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. So they, he gets married. Moses gets married to one of these men, a Midianite. And she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. So uh, the word Gershom means stranger there. And Gershom is a very... Uh, Hebrew Jewish word Gershom, at least it's uh, 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 known and remembered for that uh, purpose. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out. 
And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. I, I don't want to um, underestimate the importance of this verse. We talk about Moses. Moses tried to deliver, even in a small scale, the people, but it didn't work. Moses' plan was a failure. He, you know, how many people did Moses deliver from Egypt because he killed the Egyptian? One himself. That was it. He's the only one who safely got out of Egypt. So he traded one life for one life. That wasn't a really good deal. That was a bad high price to pay. Because he could have just left, but he didn't. You know, it wasn't what he had in mind that was going to happen. But he thought, oh, I'm going to do the right thing. So when we try to do things our way, we don't get the results. The people here call to God. It's important for the people to cry out to God when they're desperate. It's important for the people to ask God's help. Because when we learn about the story of the plagues and all that happens, that is a lot of miracles, and it's going to take direct intervention by God. And it's directly because these people cry out to God. It makes me wonder, why weren't they crying out earlier? They maybe were too stubborn. Sometimes you got to be really desperate to really cry out to God. Sometimes it takes getting the bottom before you look up. That's just the way it is. It's, not, it's, a, it's a normal story in the Bible, too, unfortunately, but it's true that we, we need to look to God and be desperate to have his help because this is what's going to happen that's going to cause... And God had it all planned, but nevertheless, these people had to do their part. They had to do their part. Verse 24, So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with, with Isaac with Jacob. Remember, God made a lot of important promises that Abraham would be a great nation. The whole world would be blessed because of this. And God keeps his promises. So when you can cry out to God and then you can link your prayer with a promise that God has made to you and to your people and to your plight, that helps get your prayers answered. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. So he, he sees their problem. So God's not going to remain inactive. It's going to take a little while, but he is going to do something about this. And uh, usually it takes, it, it usually doesn't happen instantaneously. It's, it, it's a generational thing. It's going to take generations to solve this problem. And I think right now in our own nation and other nations, it may be generationally before we see ultimate good results if we do make changes. But better to be moving in that direction than the opposite direction, right? So it's going to take a while before the nation of Israel, as it's going to be called later, uh, it's going to take a while for the children of Israel to get out of this mess. It's not going to be easy, but God's going to do it. So, go ahead. James says God has respect for them. Yes. Well, yeah, he, he, he cared about them. So uh, he also respects his own promises to them because of who they are. Because God keeps his promises. That, that, the, whole, the whole book of Genesis, the majority of it is about the promises to Abraham and, and the plight of Abraham's direct line of children. 
Well, don't you don't you imagine the attitude of the Egyptians changed drastically when they found out that Moses had killed this Egyptian? <laughs> they made him a number one uh, enemy, yeah. right? Enemy number one. I mean, like we said, they, they increased the, the load on the uh, Israelis to deliver. Yeah, it's going, and and, and they're going to have worse times before they have better times. Yeah. Uh, but Moses is going to be the hero. Uh, well, the Lord's the hero, but the, Moses is going to be the human hero here. We're going to see that. But it, you know, Moses is writing this. But Moses is a humble man. He's not bragging about himself. Okay, he's just telling kind of what happened. He's uh, you gotta. You got to think it when he talked about killing the, the Egyptian, he's not bragging about it. He's probably, he says, it wasn't the right thing for me to do. And while I'm talking about that chapter two and about the murder of the Egyptian or the killing of him, however you want to say it, it's interesting that three of the most used people in the Bible, and I mean of the pantheon of biblical figures who are very important people, and maybe in the top 10 most important people other than Jesus, three of them are murderers, okay? Think about who they are. Moses, got him here. We got David, because he used his office and influence to have a man killed, put in the worst part of the battle to hide his own sins. <laughs> Very low down thing to do, no, no question. And then Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, uh, was agreeing to the death of Stephen and had no regrets whatsoever. He did it in full conscience that we got to get rid of these people. And yet all three of them were used mightily by God. And all three of them were forgiven of their sins. And all three of them are very important to us. So when we talk about a lot of the issues of our day, whether it's killing of life in the urban crimes or, or you know, kids killing kids or, or abortion or whatever you want to say. We, it's important to say to people that, look, that is a terrible thing. Killing is a very bad thing, but it's not an unforgivable sin. You can be forgiven. And I've wondered when you think about it, that would be horrible to have on your conscience that you killed somebody. But what would be the right path to comfort a person if they're forgiven of that sin? Well, I think that the best thing you could do is if you've wrongfully killed somebody, is you get forgiveness from God, and then you try to prevent it from happening in other places. You try to do the rest of your life to save where you lost. Like, let's say, God forbid, you were in an accident and it was your fault and you killed somebody. You didn't, didn't do your job right, you whatever whether you were distracted or whether you were drunk, doesn't matter. You would have to live with that on your soul. It can put you in jail, but that wouldn't be punishment to you. The punishment would be the fact that you have it on your conscience that you killed somebody. And, and how could you forgive yourself? I would have a hard time forgiving myself, okay? And I think you might as well. But I think that the thing that people like that need to do is dedicate their life to helping prevent it in other people. Because if you could prevent 10 other people from doing what you did, you've saved how many lives? So even though that one life was long, gone, how many people are saved because you changed your life? 
They may never have been saved had you not even had that horrible experience. It's, it's turning a tragedy into a triumph. That's what God does all the time. And I think that's a good thing. Because there's a lot of people that get into wars and, and you know, they say, well, it was war and all that. But you know what? There's a lot of guys come back messed up and women too because of war trauma, because of things that got done in the heat of battle that maybe they could have done something different. You weigh in on your conscience. I'm going to have to meet God and say, I killed this person. Did I do everything I was supposed to do? Did I do it right? It's not healthy to think that way, but it's a real feeling. And so you just got to say, well, I got to do what I can do to save as many people with the rest of my life. And all, all of these men did. Uh, David got back right with God, and that was really awesome. Uh, and he gave us the Psalms. How many people have been at the bottom and read the Psalm, which talks about forgiveness? They cried out to God. And if David hadn't had that experience, which was the worst experience you could do. I mean, it, it, God didn't let David just make a small error. He allowed David to make a huge error that was within his power to do, but not the right thing to do. And because of this, he made life better for others. Moses, he killed that one Egyptian, but he saved millions later on. I like how it says here about the grace of favor with God because he got up more times than he fell down. <laughs> And God had a plan because that plan was not for Moses to stay in Egyptian anyway. So God has a plan even when we're at our worst. Still got a plan. That's good. That's good news. Because people weigh and have bad consciences. And it's that conscience, boy, that could be a, a, a jail. Right? A bad conscience. I think that's why Moses ran. It doesn't say he was in any trouble. He just said, are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses skedaddled. He assumed that it was known. Well, it was known by somebody. Yeah. And uh, secondly, the word does get to Pharaoh. A slave. Yeah. But the word got to Pharaoh. Maybe his quick departure helped add to his guilt. Who knows? But he didn't want to stick around and answer questions, did he? No. I think it was his guilty conscience. <laughs> well, I think he was well known, you know. Yeah. Prince Moses. Yeah, he killed this guy. Um, so I can understand it in the sense that, uh, believe it, I mean, I think most of us would understand him running away. And if it was your son, would you not want him in that situation to go instead of dying? I mean, it, he got in trouble and he needs to go because killing him ain't going to make it any better. Yeah. yeah. Get out of here. Go somewhere else. And he does. And he makes a life for himself. And he's going to live there like 40 years in the, in the wilderness as a shepherd. God led him to the right place. Hey, it's peaceful. He doesn't have stress like he had before. I mean, he had all the accoutrements of being a, a rich, wealthy person. And, and you know what? Despite all that privilege, if you have any kind of conscience at all, that gets to you after a while. And I'm sure you don't have a private life. You know, he, he looked this way and that way thinking nobody saw him, but hey, they saw him. They did. He was noticeable. And it, it's, it's the way life is. And now he's enjoying the, the gift of anonymity. Think about that. I guess he likes being in a place where nobody knows him as the great prince. You know, they don't know who he is. Now, 
we get word back and forth later that he establishes communications with his family, Hebrew family, back in Egypt. And sometimes they visit each other. So, well, they come to visit Moses, okay? So that does happen. We learned that he has dealings with Aaron and other things. So it wasn't that this was a complete cutting off of Moses from his people, but it is a cutting off of him from being in Egypt. He wasn't there. And that's what's happening. So our next week, we will uh, discuss the burning bush. Very famous episode that will change the world too. All these are very dramatic moments. But again, the main thing that we need to remember is that when the people are fed up with a problem, go to God with it, and God hears. And God will bring up somebody to help. He will do what he has to do to help.